hey, there is uh, maybe nothing, well, there's probably lots of things worse. But in, at the moment, as I'm thinking about it, there's, it's hard to think of uh, too many things worse than a, a missed opportunity, right? When you have just the perfect opportunity to say something or do something and you just miss it and it goes right on by. Well, one of the all-time great missed opportunities came in May of 1999. And I know there's a handful of you in here who weren't even born yet, so you don't even know what I'm talking about. But for those of you that do, you might remember that that was the month that um, George Lucas released episode one of Star Wars. And the day that they chose to release it was May 19th. And it, maybe you're already connecting the dots, and maybe you're not. But the better date would have absolutely have been May the 4th. So they could say, may the 4th be with you. Talk about your all-time missed opportunities. Mm. Well, I remember well when that movie was announced. Uh, it had been 16 years since the previous, since the last installment of the franchise, uh, The Return of the Jedi. And I was a fan of Star Wars growing up. My, we watched those movies, and so I was excited as a uh, 19, almost 19-year-old, 19 when I began seeing the movie trailers, you know, being played on TV, and uh, you know all the uh, all the marketing that goes into the a, a major Hollywood release, and and even the posters that began popping up around. You may or may not remember that, but I remember the the promotional posters that began appearing uh, pretty much everywhere. And there was one in particular that stood out to me, and I actually have it for the screen here. I hope it's it should be okay. Those of you who were alive then and, and maybe attuned to these kinds of things may recall seeing this particular poster. And I always thought this was a, just a really brilliant marketing tool. That you have this young boy here um, that you don't know anything about except he casts a shadow, doesn't he? And as you look at that shadow, it doesn't quite match his small, you know, seven-year-old, eight-year-old frame. It is instead the shadow of... A very familiar figure that you would have known if you ever watched the previous films, and you would infer from this image that this this is young Anakin Skywalker, who would go on to become Darth Vader. It's it really is it's simple, but it, it communicates so much, and it's just a brilliant uh, piece of of promotional artwork that has stuck with me. I've never forgotten this. It stood out to me then. It still stands out to me today. It's simple. It's memorable. Um, you can tell from this graphic that this young child has a destiny. His, his shadow looms large over his life. Well, as I informed you last week, we're going to be continuing through the book of Matthew uh, for this season of Lent. And we spent the, first five, or the last five weeks, uh, which were the first five weeks of the year-ish, um, looking at events from Jesus' you know, the beginning of Jesus' life back in Matthew chapter 2, but we're going to spend the next six or seven weeks looking at the last week of Jesus' life. So we're jumping from the beginning to the end, and we're going to focus on the, the key events of, his, of his, what is known as, as his Passion Week. And we're going to begin today, and you may think this is odd, and it is a little odd because today is not Palm Sunday. Traditionally, we think about today's passage on that Sunday before Easter, but this year we're going to look at it at the beginning of Lent. We're going to look at what has been traditionally uh, called the triumphal entry of Jesus 
at the beginning of chapter 21 of Matthew's gospel. And that's on page 790 if you're using one of our guest Bibles here. Um, What we're going to find in this passage is this is the first time that Jesus and his disciples in Matthew's gospel are stepping foot into Jerusalem. But they make this approach to the city under the weight of his predictions about what will happen to him there. And to understand what's happening with that, you have to go back to chapter 16. And there in chapter 16, which is this, it's a pinnacle in the gospel of Revelation. Jesus is confirming to his disciples privately who he is. He asks Peter there, or the disciples, "Who, who do you say that I am? And Peter makes his great confession. But immediately on the heels of that, Jesus begins to predict to them, what will happen to him when he gets to Jerusalem. And there's three predictions. We talked about this on Ash Wednesday uh, just this past week. There's three predictions there in chapter 16, chapter 17, and in chapter 20 of what awaits Jesus in Jerusalem, that he would suffer many terrible things, he says, at the hands of the elders, at the hands of the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. He says when he gets there, not only will he suffer many terrible things, but he would be killed. And that on the third day, he would rise again from the dead. These are predictions that loomed large over Jesus and his mission and his band of followers. And so if you're reading this gospel perhaps for the first time and you don't know, you don't know the trajectory of Jesus' life, you don't know everything that he came to do, and, and you have a, a fresh sort of uh, un, unspoiled perspective that doesn't, that doesn't know the end at the beginning, then you would come to chapter 16 and you would see what he has to say and you'd be shocked by it. And then you'd get to 17 and you see this prediction again and you, you would be silenced by the implications. What does, he, what does he mean by this? And then, of course, um, again, in chapter 20, you would feel the weight and the pressure and the, just the sort of impending feeling of, of what Jesus is saying about what awaits him and his disciples. So here we are. He's, arrived in, he's arriving in Jerusalem in chapter 21. Let's look together now at the first 11 verses of this chapter. As Jesus and his and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. And by the way, that is uh, my best attempt to pronounce that town from the Greek. Um, there's, if you ask as many different, 10 different people how to pronounce that word, uh, you'll get 10 different answers. So it's, it's like a lot of these, uh, this, I'm giving you a little, I'm giving you a little insight here to pronouncing biblical uh, people's names and city names. If you say it with confidence, people just expect that you said it the right way. So when you're asked to read the scriptures out loud, just just read it confidently. A lot of times we come to these words and we kind of get you know kind of squirmy and wimpy, and people were like, "Oh, they don't know what they're doing," but they don't know either. That's the that's the thing. No one knows. So just read it with confidence. All right. If you want to call that Beth Phage or Beth Page or Beth Fiji, you call it whatever you want. Just say it confidently. Okay. All right, so they came to this town on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Verse two, go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you are doing, just say, the Lord needs them and he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, Your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. 
they brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt and sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in highest heaven. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this? they asked. And the crowds replied, It's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, I recognize that we skipped the majority of this gospel by going from chapter 2 to chapter 21. But Matthew has been preparing the reader for this scene for a while. In addition to the three predictions that I referred to earlier from chapter 16, 17, and 20, um, along with the disciples' response to those predictions and then Jesus' correction to their response, um, chapter 20 ends with a, with a significant story that, that cues us up for chapter 21. It gets us ready. And it's that story you might recall of the two blind men who cry out to Jesus as the son of David to have mercy on them. And I don't want you to miss the significance of that story at this place in Matthew's gospel. Yes, it tells us that Jesus has, has power over nature. He can heal the, the blind. Yes, Jesus has the power to, to fix or to make right what sin has introduced into the world. Blindness was not part of the, the original good of God's creation. Cancer was not part of the original good of God's creation. Death and disease and deformity, these were not part of God's, the good of God's creation. But Jesus, can, he's come to overturn those things. He's come to, to make right what has been, been made wrong. And we see that in the, the healing of the blind men. Yes, Jesus has the power to do these things. He can relieve suffering. He can make wrong things right. But he also has, and I think this is the key point of that particular story at this particular placement in this gospel, he also has the power to reveal. He has the power to enable sight. And I believe that power to reveal and that intention to make to, to provide sight is just as much present in the, these verses we just read from chapter 21 as it is at the end of chapter 20. Jesus and Matthew, the gospel writer who's recording these things in this way, wants them and his readers and you and I to see. He wants us to see. Now, this is the only event in the gospels that's recorded that has Jesus riding on an animal. Did you know that? All four Gospels include it. They all talk about this, this entry into Jerusalem. And they all talk about this donkey that he's riding. But you cannot find anywhere else where Jesus is riding on an animal that I have been able to find. And so that's interesting to me because it tells me what we all know, but maybe we've never really thought much about, it is that Jesus was a walker. Did you know that Jesus was a walker? I'm glad he wasn't a runner, because then I would feel some sort of like pressure to have to go run, and I don't like to run. Maybe he ran, I don't know, but the Gospels don't say. But we know he walked. He walked everywhere. And I imagine Jesus to be a really like fit guy, whether it was from his, his occupation before his ministry as a, a carpenter, a carpenter's son, 
uh, an apprentice, whatever his sort of role was there as he was growing up, I picture him as being, you know, maybe not like, you know, not like Arnold Schwarzenegger type of buff, but, you know, like the natural strength kind of strong, like the rock climber strong. You know, the rock, you look at the rock climber and he's not going to have muscles that are bulging, but he's as strong as those guys, maybe stronger. And I picture Jesus as this really fit, really strong, really hardy person. Now, I, I've never been to the Holy Land. Some of you have been to the Holy Land, um, but I, have, I know people who've been to the Holy Land. I've talked to them about what, what it's like, and they assure me that the, the terrain there can be quite rugged, quite unforgiving, and that was what Jesus navigated on foot his entire life. He walked, at times, vast distances. I, we don't even know how many miles he walked in his life, but he walked a lot, and he walked everywhere. And so, when we come to this story, and we see what's happening with Jesus, who has apparently planned for some type of arrangement before they got there, when Jesus tells his disciples to go and fetch this donkey to bring them to him so he can ride it to Jerusalem, he's not doing that because he's tired. He's not doing that because he has, you know, a bad ankle, right? That's, that's me. I need to ride things because I'm out of shape. I get out of wind just going up the stairs at my house. I, I'm pulling hammies walking across the parking lot back and forth every day. That's not Jesus. He's not in need of help. No, he's doing something purposeful here. The guy that just walked 100 miles from Caesarea Philippi does not need aid for the final couple miles to his destination. He's doing something purposeful. The crowds that were following him from Galilee were getting huge. We know this from chapter 20. The crowds who were flocking to Jerusalem and were filling up that city were massive. We're talking an expansion of some 30,000 people to upwards of 180,000 people. It's, it's a, the time of the year where everyone made pilgrimage for the, the highest festival. And Jesus chose this particular time to step foot into the, the city and to do so with a bang. Matthew helps us understand the significance of this by referencing the Old Testament, not just in these verses, but really for the rest of his gospel. The last eight chapters of this gospel are just loaded with, with promise and fulfillment language at a, at a clip that, that really is much greater than anything that has come before it up to this point. In fact, um, I have a, a volume on my shelf called The Commentary on the New Testament use of the Old Testament. It was a gift from Pastor Richard. He probably doesn't even remember he gave it to me, but he did a few years ago. I've, I use it all the time. It's basically a commentary that's looking at the New Testament saying, this is, these are, this is a reference to here in the Old Testament. It's such an aid. If you're interested in anything, let me know, and I'll point you in that direction. Um, so where are, the, you know, where are the references? Where are the allusions? What are the echoes of the Old Testament that we find in the New? And as I was looking through... I was counting pages. That's what I, I get on these little tangents when I'm in sermon prep mode. I get off on these tangents, and the tangent I was on this particular time was, I was counting what are the average number of pages of commentary per chapter in the last eight chapters compared to the first 20 of Matthew's gospel. And what I found, and I know this is like super scientific, right? You can appreciate the, the scientific method being used here. Um, but the last eight chapters have twice the average number of pages per chapter compared to the first 20. 
And, and again, I, I say tongue-in-cheek, that was scientific. It's not very scientific at all. But it does give you a sense of the, the uptick in references to the Old Testament when you get to this last week of Jesus' life. Matthew sees in these, these last days and in these key events something significant. He sees something central to the plans and to the purposes of Jesus, not just to his gospel, but to all the scriptures. Everything is pointing to here. And so we get this, these, these quotes, like in verse 5, this fulfillment of prophecy. And, and we, as we look there at verse 5 and see what he quotes there, what, what we find is actually a composite of a couple of different Old Testament prophecies that, that Matthew puts together for us. You have one from Isaiah chapter 62 and one from Zechariah 9. The, the one from Isaiah comes from a, a, a part of Isaiah's vast book, um, that deals with prophecy regarding uh, a glorious new day in the life of God's people following exile. So God's people have been taken off into exile. Everything seems ruined. All is lost. And Isaiah comes with this wonderful message of something good to come, that God is going to do something new. Verse 11 in particular of that, uh, of that chapter is explicitly messianic. It says this, The Lord has sent this message to every land. Tell the people of Israel, look, your Savior is coming. There's one who's coming. He's going to save you. He's going to redeem you. He's going to restore you from exile. He brings his reward with him as he comes. So Matthew takes a snippet of that and he combines it with Zechariah 9.9 that talks about the arrival of a king who comes to bring restoration. It's not an arrival marked by war. It is an arrival marked by peace. He's going to, instead, instead of bringing weapons of war, Zechariah 9 envisions one who comes to get rid of the weapons of war. Right? It's a way of saying this is the, t- the, the type of king who's coming. This is the manner in which he comes. He's not coming to bring restoration at the edge of a sword. He's coming to bring peace. He's coming to bring healing. He's coming to, to bring freedom. Verse 11, freedom to the prisoners. It says the blood of his covenant. There's even blood language present here in Zechariah 9.9. The blood of his covenant will free prisoners from their waterless pit, he says. And so when you take these together and you look at them in their original context, you see that both passages are talking about a time when God is going to intervene on behalf of his people. A time when God is going to do something through the agency of this person person. He's going to step into history. He's going to bring redemption and restoration. He's going to put uh, an end to the wars and, and he's going to bring peace. He's going to reign as a king. But Matthew wants to see us something even in addition to that. And it's, it's evident, not just in the, the quote of, of a couple of prophecies that he has sort of spliced together, it's evident in how he tells the story of Jesus coming onto the scene here. He wants those who are reading this this account to to see an allusion to another story in the Old Testament, and that is the one of David on his way back to Jerusalem after the defeat of Absalom's rebellion there in 2 Samuel. If you were to go back to 2 Samuel and read chapters 14, 15, all the way through 19 or so into 20, you would see that as David is returning to the city, well, what's the path that he takes? Well, he crosses the Mount of Olives, east of the city. 
Go back and look at verse one of our chapter. Where is Jesus? How, what direction is Jesus approaching the city from? Well, he's coming from the east. He's coming over the Mount of Olives. Second um, Samuel, what does it say in chapter 16? What was provided to David as he's making this journey? He was provided donkeys. What is Jesus sitting upon as he's approaching the city? He's riding a donkey. In chapters 19 and 20, when David arrives, there's, there, there's this, the, this feeling that when he comes, he's coming to, to, to crush everybody. But instead, he, he comes out and he distributes grace. He comes humbly. David comes in peace. And we are to see Jesus approaching in the same manner. Now, Jesus will have some, some hard things to say and do when he gets there, which we'll talk about next week. But for now, look Look at how Matthew's telling the story. It would recall to mind those, those images from 2 Samuel. In addition to the, the prophecy from, from Isaiah and the one from Zechariah, he's tying all of these, these Old Testament themes, all of this imagery, all of this symbolism together to, to point us to one unmistakable conclusion about what is happening here. And it is none the, nothing less than Jesus himself Presenting himself publicly, presenting himself deliberately, presenting himself with premeditation as Israel's long-awaited Messiah. And that is fascinating because it wasn't just five chapters ago that Jesus was explicit with his disciples that they were to tell no one about this. Remember back in chapter 16, who do you say that I am? Peter stands up. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus, you're right. You're right. You've identified me rightly. But then in verse 20, it says he sternly warned them not to tell anybody about these things. It's interesting to me. And it tells me that it wasn't time for that yet. But Matthew's saying now in chapter 21, the time has come. And he absolutely could have come to Jerusalem in any manner that he wanted to. He could have come in any way. He could have come at any time. He could have, come, he could have gone in as discreet as a little church mouse. In fact, we know from John chapter 7 that he had done that previously. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us that Jesus had been to Jerusalem before this time because he doesn't include it in his gospel. But John tells us in John chapter 7 that there was another festival that was going on and everyone was asking him to come. And he's like, no, I'm good, I'm good. And they all go. But then he kind of secretly goes. And he shows up and he begins to teach there in the temple. And, and there's, there's a, a chapter or two about this, this previous time that Jesus goes into Jerusalem. But here he chooses in Matthew's gospel, the busiest time he chooses the, it, uh, to come in a way that draws as much attention to himself as possible and to provoke a particular response. And I'm interested in, interested in this morning, what is the response? What was he going for? What is he expecting to have happen? Now, we, we always call this, this, uh, this passage the triumphal entry of Jesus. Um, and we envision, you know, the, the, all the people of Jerusalem are, are welcoming him. And oftentimes, sermons focus on just sort of the fickle nature of people's response to Jesus. And that's, that's a, a good and a right instinct because people are fickle. And our responses to God vary with, you know, how our stomach feels on any given day. And so it's right to, to talk about a, a warm welcome that turns cold quickly. 
Indeed, the, the cries for Hosanna are, are very soon going to become the cries for execution. That, that's a right observation. But I don't know, maybe calling it the triumphal entry isn't the best thing to say. I mean, you, you have already perhaps seen the, the title of this sermon in your bulletin. You know that I've, I've sort of done a little play on that typical way of, of referring to this story, and I'm not calling it the triumphal entry. I'm calling it the triumphal approach. And you might be saying, why, Pastor Sean, are you playing with the headings in our Bibles? Well, first of all, I'm allowed to because those weren't in the original autographs, okay? So you can, you can play with those too if you want. They're helpful, but they're not inspired. So I can take whatever liberty I want with those to make my point. It, it wasn't necessarily a triumphal entry, but it was definitely a triumphal approach. And, and, I'm, and I'm making that distinction because in Matthew's gospel, at least, the ones who are shouting Hosanna, you know, God save us, which they may have meant save us, but by that point in history, it was more of just sort of a general cry of praise. Kind of like people just say, hallelujah. You know, this is like, their, this is the hallelujah of the, of the Old Testament people at this point. Um, and so the, the, the crowds that are shouting Hosanna, the crowds that are laying their clothes on the ground and cutting branches to lay them on the ground, the people that are doing these things, who are, who are praising God for the arrival of, of David's son with language from Psalm 118, the very people doing this in Matthew's gospel are primarily, if not exclusively, the same crowds who have been following him from Galilee. It's, go back to chapter 20, verse 29. It's, it's the large crowd that had gathered to follow Jesus before he ever got to Jerusalem. This is the crowd that has followed him during his northern ministry. They've, they've, they've heard the amazing things that are going on, and they've seen the amazing things that he's done, and they've, they've heard his teachings, and they've, they know there's something unique about him, and so they're following him. And now everyone's making the pilgrimage to Jerusalem, so let's make it with him. So these are, these are not the locals in Jerusalem that Matthew is telling us about. These are the ones who have identified him from the north as that prophet like Moses that Deuteronomy 18 talked about. And that's why when they're asked who he is, they tell him in verse 11, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The locals instead in Jerusalem can be seen as being, well, they're either, they either don't know who he is or he is unwelcome to them. It takes a little bit of the, the triumph out of his entry into the city. You know, the last time Jesus was here, going back to John 7 and 8, was he welcomed triumphantly? Does anybody remember what happened in chapter 8? He was run out of town under threat of being stoned. In fact, they would have killed him then. But he managed to slip away. Jesus is a slippery one. He comes in secretly. He disappears. He's, he's not being slippery here. He's being very public, very provocative. And the welcome isn't what we always imagine it to be, at least not for the locals in the city. This is the Galilean hillbilly. You know, that, that guy up north that we've been hearing about, and we've dispatched people to go check him out, and he's He's a bit of a threat, but you know he was a distant threat. But now that distant threat has come here to cause trouble right in the middle of our situation. Matthew has been preparing us for this moment. Well, you may recall, since all the way back in chapter 2. You remember back in chapter 2, the welcome he received in Jerusalem once news of his birth from the Magi began to spread around town? 
Do you remember what it says? That they were excited that these wise men from the east had come to tell them that prophecy was being fulfilled and that the, the, the descendant of David had been born? Did you see them waving palm branches and celebrating the arrival of their long-awaited Messiah? No, chapter 2 tells us the entire city was deeply distressed for a whole myriad of reasons. And now, here he has come back 19 chapters later, and it says in our passage here that Jerusalem was in an uproar. The, the word that is translated uproar there is, is basically earth, an earthquake. In fact, it's the same word that describes what happened the moment he dies later in the gospel. There was an, earth, an actual earthquake. It's the same word. It also describes the response of the guards at the resurrection. They were shaken to the core. The city is shaken to its core. Now, this isn't the first time Jerusalem has experienced a scene similar to this. We're going to put our history hats back on for a moment. You historians, this is for you. And for you non-historians, this is also for you. You remember a few weeks ago, we talked about uh, the intertestamental history uh, from the time of Alexander the Great's empire to the time of Herod the Great. There lots of greats back then, weren't there? Um, maybe we need more greats today. Sean the Great sounds pretty good. I don't know. But you wouldn't be able to say that with any honesty, so I don't want to compromise your integrity, so I'm not going to make you say it. Um, but we talked about that three or 400-year period there. What was going on in the world, in that part of the world, at that time? And you remember uh, the, the name Judas Maccabee. You remember the, the Maccabean revolt, how they, they rose up this, this priest who was like a guerrilla warrior who rose up to, to fight back against the, the Seleucid, that Greek empire that filled the power vacuum as, the, as Alexander's empire began bre- breaking down into uh, smaller parts. And, and his revolt came on the heels of notorious atrocities committed by um, a, a Seleucid empire, that emperor that went by the name Antiochus IV. You may remember Antiochus IV from your, your Sunday school or uh, maybe even your public school history lessons. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know where you may have heard that name before, but you probably almost certainly have. And, and he was guilty of committing all sorts of atrocities. He persecuted the Jews in particular, and, and he came in and he enforced policies that were you know, just really terrible for them. Like he, he, he banned circumcision. Like you want to, you want to oppress the the Jewish people. Well, there's, there's exhibit A of how to do it. He, he banned circumcision. He's burning the scriptures whenever he can get his hands on them. He's executing anyone who rebels against him or, or fights back in any way. He's, he's crushing these people every chance he can. And he, he's perhaps most noted for, um, going into the temple and desecrating it by putting idols all around it and even sacrificing pigs on the altar to Zeus. It's a pretty, pretty wicked guy who, by the way, called himself, he gave himself the name Epiphanes, which means something like God manifest, right? He viewed himself as sort of like an incarnation of Zeus himself. He, he's clearly a, a self-inflated narcissistic, wicked tyrant 
who the people, the Jewish people to this day, remember the things that he did. Now, after the Maccabees liberated Jerusalem, they had to cleanse the temple. So they cleanse the temple, they rededicate it there in 164 BC. That was what Hanukkah celebrates to this day. You remember that now. But here's what I didn't mention a few weeks ago. At this dedication, as the the, the liberators, the, the Maccabean liberators are are they've they've taken Jerusalem back and they're making everything wrong right again. At this celebration, at this rededication, what were the people shouting? Hosanna. What were the people waving? Palm branches. How did the people view this mighty act of deliverance? They viewed it as redemption that came to them from God himself. It was a defining moment in the history of God's people, embedded deeply into the collective memory of Jesus' own contemporaries. And the people in Jerusalem in Matthew 21 were only removed by just a, a generation, two or three. And they would have absolutely remembered their recent history. And Jesus coming into the city in this way would have supercharged his actions with nationalistic and militaristic expectations. But he's not riding in the town on a war horse or a chariot. He's not there to liberate them from Roman occupation. Instead, he's riding on a donkey's colt. And if indeed he is a king, well, he's not the kind of king anyone there is interested in. In fact, no one there even has the categories for what he's about to do. Not even his own disciples. I mean, from the moment he has disclosed to them his intentions, all the way back in chapter 16, they either, his intentions are either completely misunderstood or they are just outright rejected. No one could fathom his own understanding of the kingdom of God, his own sense of his own you know, identity, who he is as, as the eternally begotten son of God. They, no one could fathom what he views as why he came and what he has come to do. No one could accept that the shadow that was being cast over his predictions in these final days of his life would take on the shape of a cross. The Maccabeans took Jerusalem by force, but Jesus will allow himself to be taken by force. But that was his destiny. That was his purpose for coming. And that sort of self-givingness over to the will of the Father is the very heart and soul and essence and principle of the kingdom of God. Look, Jesus didn't come to share nice teachings. He didn't come to to present the world with this wonderful model of of how to be pious or how to be righteous, how to be a good Jew. No, Matthew, with everything he has been saying up to this point, with the way he has 
written his gospel, how he sees Old Testament being fulfilled, how, he, how the, the, the pace in which he's making allusions and drawing conclusions from the Old Testament is doubling. Ma- Matthew is saying, this right here is central to why he came. It's not to teach good things. It's not to be a good example. He came to die. And because he didn't meet anyone's expectations or demands, within just a matter of days, the very voices crying, Hosanna, fall silent. You won't hear anything in the same galaxy as Hosanna on Good Friday, will you? And those voices of the ones who are shaken to the core by the, his manner of entry and the imagery that is associated with it, well, those same voices will be calling within a matter of days for his execution. And all of that, this is one of those extended introduction sermons that all leads up to one real point. So sorry for you three-point people, you're getting one today. All of this extended introduction and all of this sort of history and, and how Matthew's using the Old Testament and what all these things mean brings us to the, the, the point of this message. What is our response to his arrival, to his presence, to his self-disclosure in our lives? What will we allow Jesus through the lens of the scriptures, what will we allow Jesus to help us see? Everyone in this story has their own notions of what it means for him to be who he is, but he doesn't measure up to any of them. And I wonder, are we any different? Let me put the question to you another way. Will you allow him to come to you the way that he wants to come? To do the work that he wants to do in your life? Or is your posture towards him going to be that you will force upon him what you expect him to be or what you want him to do? Everyone welcomes King Jesus in their life so long as he uses his position and his power to carry out their will. But I wonder if God isn't looking for someone, anyone, who will simply just surrender their lives without question over to his will, to King Jesus, the one who's making himself known. He is God manifest. And he comes in a certain way a certain purpose in mind, not just in our story. He's, he comes to us now to make himself known, to carry out a particular plan in your life, for your life, through your life. And is our posture going to be, no, I want you to be this, and I want you to do this for me? Or is it going to be, I'm yours. I want to see you as you are. I want to receive you in the manner in which you come. I want you to do what only you can do and what you want to do in my life. God has intervened to redeem his people. 
He has made peace for the nations possible. The blood of his covenant does set the prisoner free. But he must be welcomed as he is and not as we think he should be. Lord, help us not to miss any opportunity. Help us not to miss any chance to hear from your word, not to inject into your word the things that we think or the things that we feel or the things that we want it to say, but to truly open your word and as those pages are open, it's an image of our hearts being opened, of our ears being opened, of our lives being laid bare and exposed before you. And in the intimacy of this moment, face to page, heart to your heart. Oh, Jesus, we want to see you. To see you. You are the royal Messiah King. You are the promised liberator, the promised deliverer, the one who occupies a throne in heaven and you will be seated there forever. But you don't conquer by killing, but rather by dying. Your kingdom is truly an upside-down kingdom. And Lord, that's because we see it from our perspective. And in reality, ours are the upside-down kingdoms. And so come and, and, and turn our minds and our hearts right side up. And do the work in our lives that only you can do. The very work that you came to do. To, to free us. To give us salvation from all sin. To cleanse us of all of our the pollution of our unrighteousness. To make us a fit vessel for you to come and dwell by the, by the person of your spirit. That we might be the home of God. That you would manifest yourself to us. But also in us and through us. That we would that we would be filled by you and that we would be, become like you. Lord, forgive us where at any point in our lives, whether in the distant past or perhaps even this morning, where we look, looked at you as someone to manipulate for our ends, someone to be what we want you to be, to do what we demand that you do. Lord, that is not the posture of our hearts today. Instead, we are, we are laid open before you and we say, Lord, have your way in me. Have your way in us. Bring your kingdom here. And be glorified, Lord, because you alone are worthy. Pray these things in your name. Amen.